0: Welcome to Direction Correct, a People Alliance podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Amy Stevenson. i probably try to talk less because that
1: sounds
0: awful. <laughs> <laughs> I like that deep voice, yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, we'll just take the conversation where it goes. And uh, I mean, the good news is we're, we're convinced that like 50% of our listeners are bots anyway. So I mean, <laughs> It's probably small. more
1: than 50%, like seriously. So it's um, no pressure, really. Yeah, yep. there's no pressure here, Amy. All well, right. Do um, you guys want to go ahead and get started then? Yeah, let's do <laughs> it. Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole Knapper and Scott Hines. Scott, we have got a glorious guest today. Do you want to introduce her?
0: Yes. Glorious. <laughs> with, with a sorted past, as I understand, right? Oh, Lord. We have uh, Amy Stevenson. Uh, she's the head of people insights at HP, uh, where she leads the technology enablement platform, data management, reporting, the analytics, and employee listening systems. Like it's a huge job. So you don't lead anything else, Amy. Come on, come on. Uh,
2: well, who, don't, I hope my boss doesn't hear this. He'll add some more to the plate.
0: <laughs> and previously, uh, Amy worked at AIG and SGS. Where uh, she supported the Middle East and Africa. And I'm sure we'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. But how's it going, Amy?
2: It's going great. I am very excited to be here. Thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, I've been uh, following the progression of this um, excellent podcast, and very, very excited and proud that you have asked me to participate.
0: Oh well, thank you so much for the accolades. Well, but I mean, I- you
2: call me Gloria, so I have to give you I guys mean- some. Some crap
0: back i mean speaking of glorious like you and cole have known each other forever like any anything we need to know about cole any stories
2: oh ooh, we have some from grad school uh, i'm not gonna sure get that- me in trouble yeah i'm not sure uh, he he has a very interesting singing
1: voice oh really <laughs> oh wow. oh gosh then we're really going low quick aren't we oh goodness
2: no it's it's actually funny that you mentioned scott so we have known each other for for quite a, a long time now, I guess, uh, uh, you know, it's certainly been over a decade. But what's funny is that um, I actually met Cole's father, probably a decade even before that. Um, and and so we're both from Louisiana. Um, and, you know, I had lived uh, for a while in what is Cole's hometown, and um, had a job where I uh, interacted with his dad. So I knew of Cole's family for, for many years. So when I met him um, and drew the connection, it's kind of, you know, it's a small world.
0: So you were, you worked with Cole's dad or like. Uh... Many
2: years ago. Yeah. So in my a previous life, I worked in the legal field and Cole's father is a, an attorney. Um, and so we used to work quite closely together and in, uh, in, in court uh, frequently. So <laughs> yeah. So your
1: sucker suits and all. You know. Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> I, I actually did have one, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yep
0: nothing wrong this year sucker in louisiana i mean like, no, hey
2: it's it's a necessary that's the suit the suit material of choice in the summer there
1: it is a uniform for sure
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, maybe, so yep <laughs> maybe we can use this as an opportunity so amy like how because you know you and i have uh, have known each other a while it sounds like you, you've known my family even longer than mm-hmm. that. um But how did you get into people analytics? It sounds like you've done a little bit of meandering. I mean, you have a really interesting career path, but I don't want to ruin it for the audience. Maybe maybe you can share a little bit about that.
2: uh, Meandering, I like that. I would call it circuitous. Um, (laughs) um, I actually... Um. Yeah, I, I don't know, you know, it wasn't like, well, first of all, you know, people analytics is a buzzword, right? It's, it's, it's been around for a while, but long before it was people analytics, it was, you know, other stuff. The work's been going on for, for a long time before it was known as people analytics. But I actually um, went to undergrad um, with the intention to become a veterinarian, major in pre-veterinary medicine and um, more specifically an equine veterinarian. Um, so talk about a big uh, deviation in career path. but um, at some point in undergrad, I, uh, I remember flipping through the course catalog, our, our old folks, we know those, right? used to be a like, oh, yeah. paper catalog, right? That you'd flip through. And I remember, this was at Louisiana Tech, uh, remember seeing um, courses for IO psychology a master's in I/O psychology. And I don't know what it was about it that that sort of um, caught my attention, but I was interested. I didn't, you know, of course it had undergrad psychology as a whatever standard course that all undergrads have to have. But I thought, you know, well, my idea of psychology is mostly clinical and counseling, right? So this notion that there was a, a facet of psychology that had to do with business was intriguing to me. Um, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting, I want to look into that more, um, shared this with my parents, and they were like, no, no, this is not, this is, this This <laughs> sounds like a fly-by-night career path, um, st- stick to your course. But in any event, I made the choice to switch to psychology um, as an undergraduate major with the, the, the driving intention was to get a master's in I.O., and it was just because of a random fl- flicking through, you know, a course catalog. Um I ended up getting the master's at Louisiana Tech in um, in I.O., and during that time, as I mentioned, I was working in the legal field, and I had decided uh, I was going to be an attorney then, um, but focused on perhaps like labor and union relations or something more akin to the the field, so I thought, you know, it would still be beneficial to get the master's in I.O., Fast forward, um, finished the masters, and had an opportunity to go work um, abroad for six months on a contract in the Middle East. And I thought, well, as I apply for, let's see, medical school or vet school, uh, you know, law school. uh, I took the GMAT. I took the LSAT. I took the MCAT. (laughs) I took the GRE. I was covering all my bases. And um, when I graduated, there was a bit of a latency period, you know, before applications needed to go in. Uh, for, for professional programs. And so I took the, um, took the contract in the Middle East to do some consultation management consultation work. And it was supposed to be for six months and then it turned into six years. And then all of a sudden it had been almost 10 years and had really um, gotten into this space there that wasn't called people analytics, but that's what it was. You know, I was doing management consultation. Um, she was a
1: contract killer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean. And um <laughs>
2: And had the opportunity to live all over the world and um, and travel and gain a lot of international business experience. And I finally decided, you know what, I really do love I/O, and um, I want to go back and get my PhD in it. I actually feel like there was uh, a big benefit in having such a big gap between getting my master's and PhD, like ten years, because yeah. um, not only did people analytics come about, our measurement techniques, our computing power. You know, all the advancements advancements that had happened in that 10-year period really put me in a position of, I think, gleaning a lot more um, from the educational experience, but coming in with a practical, um, you know, business background and experience that I could bring into the program with students, frankly, that some of them had come straight in from undergrad, right? So there was this context that I was able to, I think, add to the program and offer as as at that point, a professional, right? About ten years into my career, that was um, beneficial to hopefully them, but also me.
0: I and, I had a I had a very similar story where I got a master's degree and went into the uh, working world for about like mm-hmm. eight years, developing assessments, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then finally chose to go back to Louisiana Tech or mm-hmm. back or to Louisiana Tech to yeah. pursue a PhD. And uh, you're you're so right. The 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 wealth of experience that you can draw from when you're you know reading. Mm-hmm and frame up like what, what these articles actually mean in comparison mm-hmm. to like your peers which are uh, they, they have no experience they can just only like, talk to yeah. what they read
2: or like no, that's just I, it you read
1: peer you know I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's why i like you guys so much is because I, I i mean this sincerely i learned a lot from both of you i continue to learn a lot from both of you and i think it's because of that experience that you guys bring
2: Yeah, I know. It's interesting. You know, you read stuff in books, right? And it's like, well, I know it says this, but let me tell you how this works out in practice, right? Here's some things you should consider when things um, go pear-shaped relative to what they're talking about here. So, yeah, and and, I mean, it was interesting, too. I probably am a little bit, um, like, it's not traditional, I think, to get your undergrad, master's, and PhD from the same university. You don't see that very frequently. Um, and I don't think that was ever the master plan. Um, I have a lot of respect <laughs> for tech as an institution and had really great educational um, experiences there. So, you know, uh, this, this program, the PhD program was quite new at that point. In fact, Cole was the first cohort. Um, and I remember um actually I was just I stayed in touch with a lot of my master's professors all these years that I was working overseas and I had just reached out to have a chit chat and say hey I've gotten serious about going back and getting a PhD do you have any recommendations about you know programs and they were like well as a matter of fact um, we've just got you know been approved to have a PhD program here and so I was like huh that's interesting um, and didn't think that much about it but really what sold me um, frankly early on was this um, when, it, when I came to meet with the faculty just to talk about it was this, this, the student-led consulting, right, Mm -hmm. the the applied and practice focus of the program, which to me, I knew I wasn't going to, going to go into academia, right, I was already, like, pretty entrenched in practical, um, practitioner, um, the practitioner space in the I.O. field, so um, to me, I thought, not only does this align with my, you know, uh, ongoing career interests and focus, but um, I also felt I could bring something into the program, given my business contacts and my experience in doing, you know, consulting. That perhaps, you know, um, this could be a route to also provide some some revenue into the the program through the consulting firm. And that's you know what what ultimately you know I was thankfully able to do was to be able to contribute early on to the development of that. And now look at Eros, right? Sort of a flagship um, student-led consulting group within a phd program it's awesome it's been wonderful to see the the evolution of that um
0: of well that we're group. we're gonna have the uh, godfather himself on uh Tillman sheets dr oh, Tillman yeah. sheets yeah uh, look out he, for that in a couple he months. was he
2: was the hard sell on me coming back to tech uh for for thrice <laughs>
0: <The third time. laughs> what, what what did you learn uh living in the middle east like what, what, are, the, what are the differences like how, how how does it translate to the uh current state of affairs, like all this sort of stuff?
2: Um, well, I mean, you know, just very basically, I think um, just uh, the cross-cultural experience was invaluable, right? Um, you know, I think if you've, I, I grew up in a family where we didn't travel much. Um, we didn't, you know, really have the means yeah. to do so. Um, lived, came from an extremely rural area. And my parents also always stressed, like, look, there's a big wide world out there we may not be able to give you, you know, that at the outset. And this is of course before the internet and all that, right? You know, being, being that connected and having the ability to kind of um, you know, get that sort of information from, from, mm-hmm. from home. Um, but to me, it just was a, a huge advantage to be able to spend time um, across cultures, but also work across industries within those cultures to get just a, both a broad and a deep, I think, set of experiences that continue to inform me and guide me to this day. So while I didn't recognize it as cross-cultural experience and, and kind of getting that, um, that deeper understanding, it has really, I think, been something that's informed me as we think about what are those those implications, right? As we're working as IO psychologists and need to be sensitive to um, differences, right? Um, and so I would say that that was a, a, a huge formative experience for me. Um, I also, because I was living in the Middle East, um, kind of random, I didn't anticipate this, but I started picking up Arabic um, and had never studied it before. And it was quite odd because it seemed to be a little bit natural. And that doesn't seem to be common uh, for people who haven't had exposure to that early on. And I had a wonderful mentor and, and leader at that point who said, this is huge, right? And, you know, you're not going to understand how much this could, you know, potentially help you in your career. So we're so invested in you that we're going to actually like send you to school to study this, this language. And so, you know, totally not expected, but not only did I get all this wonderful experience, I gained, you know, like fluency in in another language. I'm getting rusty now because I don't use it as much, but Um, it's just, you know, being open to experience and experiencing all those things that come your way fully when you have um, a good leader kind of watching out for you. And I didn't even recognize it as such at the time or you know, taking on every opportunity that comes your way to say, yes, I will move to Djibouti for Mm -hmm. six months to work on a project, even though, you know, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I know something good is going to come out of it. It was just, it was a huge formative experience for me. And um, you know, something I, I just, I'm so thankful for. And it was not very well thought out and executed plan. But, uh, you know, it, it was. Well, and that, that's the
1: thing. I mean, I, I love that you're on here, Amy, because I get to praise you in person. But <laughs> that's the thing that I admire and I've tried to emulate about you. Yeah, you know, last week Scott and I were talking about uh, one of the things that I try to do with people analytics. It's kind of be the the first monkey shot in the space mm. in terms of just going out and doing stuff. And I, I, honestly, I attribute that to learning from you and, and your friendship. So I'm really grateful that you're here. I am. I am curious. Let and and, and tell me what you think about this, but. Um, Did you think that equipped you at all for being successful in your current role with HP or even prior roles like at AIG or anything like that? Um, In in that, I don't know, you might, I don't know if you call it like risk-taking or just being open to new experiences or how has that framed your, you know, your career pathway in in the current state?
2: Hmm. It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I guess so. I guess, you know, to your point, it's the openness to experience, but also just the courage to like fail. Right. I mean, yeah. I knew there were things that I didn't have experience doing or that I might, you know, look like an idiot or whatever. But, you know, I don't know whether it's to my credit or my detriment, but I'm one of those people who will open my mouth and put myself out there and at least try something. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of instances where, um, you know, the nature of just sort of being the only person in the field there that kind of had the skill set to maybe cobble together data into a story. This is again before people insights, but it was like, Hey, we we uh, you know have this contract and we have a bunch of data and we don't know how to organize it or do anything with it and we need someone to be able to kind of tell the story of how we've been performing against this contract, you know. And I'd be like, raise my hand, you know. I'm not a business person. I don't have an MBA. You know, I have a master's in IO, but I know how to like you know deal with data in spreadsheets and let me take a crack at it. And then I would find that I would be the youngest often and least experienced person and these very senior leaders would say oh we'll come in and present it and that was terrifying right let me be honest with you that early on in your career um but I would just always do it and you know there's times like I didn't do a great job but I always came out of it and said you know what dust yourself off and this is going to prepare you for the next time and it's just through experience and practice and I really think you know Cole to your question. Um, how was that formative? I think it just gave me a comfort level with presenting to audiences of various levels of authority and realizing that like, oftentimes I actually did know more than them. Right.
0: It's, Um, it's, it's not just experience, but it's like diversity of experience. I don't know if you you guys are familiar with uh, Ronald Bird. He he does a bunch of network analytics for studies and he's got like a great one. I think it was like 2016 uh, called network oscillation, which I'm trying to replicate. mm -hmm. He essentially shows that uh, if you like go into different pockets of the organization or uh, uh, the working world at large, you get all these really diverse experience and it increases your mm-hmm. compensation, uh, greatly by being able to, uh, stitch together these different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. Cole, Cole's had several different roles. I know mm-hmm. you've had several different roles. Uh, and I think both of you are, uh, uh more valuable for it clearly.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being the case and, you know, to, um, You know, just also thinking about being out of your comfort zone and element, that's, that. I mean, by by its very nature, it's an uncomfortable thing to do, but the more you do it, there's fewer and fewer situations that really push you into that territory, you know, as you gain experience to your point, diversity of experiences and, and, um, you know, so forth. It just, uh, it, I think as a, a, a people analytics, people insights leader, you know, once you get to that point, you have to be able to walk into a room. And you have to be confident um, and comfortable um, in interacting with a variety of, of leadership and audiences and to be able to command, you know, um, the room, right? And so I just think that comes through opportunities to to stretch your muscles in that way. So
1: well, it's funny you say that, I mean, that's one of the things I, I share with my teams often is one of the most underrated skills in people analytics, and frankly, in leadership, like frontline level leadership for that matter, is courage and bravery, right? Mm-hmm. No, nobody talks about these things usually if you're reading any kind of literature on people analytics, but mm-hmm. they can be a huge difference maker. The other mm-hmm. thing, Scott, to your point about network oscillation and kind of the diversity of experiences, I can't remember where I came across this saying, but um, was You know, would you rather have 10 years of experience or one year of experience 10 times, you know, and most people's jobs are cyclical like that. So they have the same year over and over and over again. And so I think that's that's where the differentiation comes in. And and, you know, I think Amy is speaks to that very eloquently.
0: Yeah, there's there's nothing new to be learned when you're running the I don't know the the same engagement survey for the ten years in a row. Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. it, exactly. Uh, it may look good on a resume that you've been in the same role for this long, but mm-hmm. really you're just going to say the same shit over <laughs> and over.
2: Well, I mean, I, and you're bringing up something. So, as a leader, you know, I frequently have to hire, right? Right. Um, res- build, you know, resource models and operating models and think about the, you know, interconnection between those two things. And, you know, when I'm interviewing, I mean, of course, you know, if you need certain things, right. Certain, um, level, like experiences, um, that are Te- non-negotiable, technical skills, right. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but you know, I, I am looking for that. I'm looking for that person who has, um, this ability to, um, interconnect, right? Whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, from having worked across industries and saying like, well, I can speak to this from the financial services industry, and this is how it's similar or different from, you know, the tech industry or whatever, right? Um, But I'm looking for those individuals who um, have a diversity of thought, curiosity for an openness to experience, um, because you know what, those are going to be my game players. Those are going to be the people who are going to raise their arm when we have a tough project or something that requires um, I'd say complex, uh, you know, levels of of uh, consultative, like skills across whether it's, you know, functional groups within an organization or whatever. And frankly, you know, and and it's not like a certain personality type or anything like that. You know, there's there's people who are, I mean, I'm going to say introverts, extroverts, whatever, you know, you yeah. can use. It's, it, there's not a certain box. It's more about like, how have you, you know, how have you applied yourself and been open to... Um, you know, experiencing uh, these these very different um, you know circumstances and and been willing to do so and then bring it back, bring it back to the team. You know.
1: Well, and Amy, I, gosh, I, I could not agree more. And if people were on video, they could see I'm like literally clapping over here at what you're saying <laughs> because yeah, I just I, I'm I'm really jiving with this so much, and and I think the reason is. In, And this is why people analytics compared to like, let's say the rest of the HR profession and the rest of the HR profession, you usually have a very narrow definition of what good looks like or what competencies you need to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Whereas people analytics spans the entire HR function, Mm -hmm. but but not just that, the entire business itself. And, And you're usually working across everything. And so you have to have... This diversity of experiences, this, you know, the bringing different kind of mindsets to the table. This is exactly what I think is needed in our field. Mm-hmm. And so I, do you have any, like, I, I don't know, any, I, I, and I understand that maybe you can't share this, but um, do you have any specific experiences of where you've seen this play out in the real world that you could share with our community?
2: Mm well so i can talk a little bit about um you know i've had the privilege to lead a lot of you know excellent you know teams and and partner um you know with a lot of excellent colleagues and Timmy I've found the richest experiences when i either lead teams or, or or engaged with um hr colleagues that are you know they we have so many people that come from like backgrounds in finance you know backgrounds in computer science you know, we, you name it, right, economics. Um, we've got some folks that have marketing backgrounds, right? And so, you know, in my experience, um, you know, having this sort of diverse sets, and I'm not just talking about educational backgrounds, I'm talking about professional backgrounds that have found their way to HR and more specifically people analytics or people insights through these, again, circuitous routes, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, I just... I, you know, the, the, they'll oftentimes bring a lens or perspective to the table that just doesn't naturally occur to me or, you know, someone else on the team. And we have these really robust debates and dialogues, right, because of it. They're not one dimensional, which is what I really appreciate, because you know what I view, I think about being a president, right, or a political leader. To me, you know, the the this beautiful idea is like, I want this cabinet. I want this cabinet of experts who are all smarter than me in different areas, right? And by pulling those experts and people together, you know, my job is kind of the easy one in a way, right? I get to listen to all these brilliant people come together and debate and then ultimately advise me on a decision. And I may have the ultimate authority to make a decision in some cases, but you know what? I feel a lot more confident. That it isn't a one dimensional decision or that it wasn't just, you know, like laid down, like here is the one recommendation. There's very healthy debate that goes into making these decisions. And I think that's, that's because we have this breadth and depth of experience.
1: You heard it here, folks, everybody. Amy Stevenson, for president, 2024. Oh, Johnson man. Hey, we're, we're, no. Scott and I are on your
2: team. We're behind Oh, you. yeah. I mean, that's it, man. You know, you hire people smarter than you. I don't know. I mean, we've heard that a lot. People say that. But hire, hire people smarter than you. And, uh, you know, you'll go far. That's well, absolutely the truth.
0: I guess question for both of you. Like, what were the trends that you're seeing in people analytics or the things that keep you up at night as well? Mm. Things you're worried about on the cusp.
2: I, I would say t- trends and worried, you know, opportunities, challenges, whatever. Um, so I think something that I've been very conscious in, in doing here is um, understanding the value um, in having dedicated um, privacy expertise within the analytics or insights function. Um, and so... Um, We are very much at HP taking an active role in in making that happen. It's not that we haven't historically had very deep and and, and healthy relationships with privacy and legal, but there's a recognition that we actually need a dedicated asset or resource within the HR community um, that can not just be that liaison across to those groups, right, but can be that resource for HR and and more importantly, that it sits within people insights because we're sort of the nexus, right, of bringing all this together for HR in terms of data and, and analytics and, and surfacing that to our various audiences. Um, having someone that can really advise us, not just about like, hey, here are the regulatory concerns or things that you need to be thinking about, or, you know, from a tech, you know, systems platform, whatever tool perspective, here's some boxes that we need to tick and tie. It's being forward thinking. Um, and saying, okay, these are the technologies. These are the things that are coming down in 2030. Let's let's make sure we're squared away for right now, but we need to be future focused, right? And thinking more broadly about what's coming down the pike. And so that's something um, that we've been very focused on. I think it's important to uh, a couple things we're doing here. We have an employee data privacy policy like most organizations, right? And it's great and it's robust and we have, You know, I'm not, I don't own that, clearly, that sits somewhere else, but we're consciously saying, okay, what do we need to do not to supplant that, but to augment it, right, in terms of developing um, what I'll call code of practices, right, Um, these charters, right, that are visible to our HR community. And not only is that good for the HR community to make a connection between what does this mean in practice when I ask for something, for a solution to be developed, and why it may or may not be a good idea. But it also allows me,, um, a very integrated way to say, "This is why this isn't on our roadmap. It allows me to push back, right, when it's appropriate and say, "No, but this is why." <laughs> it's not just saying no. It, it has a broader implication for not just that we can't support it with a current technology stack or whatever, or you know, it's a little controversial. It's we have a way to really codify that. Um, and make it visible, not just to HR, but ultimately our expectation is to do that for employees as well. So that it is like clearly transparent. Can clearly transparent. Really, like, can
1: <laughs> I ask don't. a really stupid question, Amy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why Why does privacy matter in the people analytics field? Like what's What's the business case for privacy? And obviously I know the answer to this, but I, I think it's really important our audience hear it from somebody like you.
2: Well, so I think, we all want some agency, right, as individuals. And that that certainly extends to the um, use of the data that's collected at the individual level within an organization, right? So I may say, yes, I'm opting in to take the, I don't know, whatever, annual annual engagement survey, right? I see the value in that. And I know how that's like helping leaders understand the, you know, whatever, the the situation in the organization relative to what what you're asking in an engagement survey, however, I get to I start feeling maybe a little bit more uncomfortable if, you know, it's not just about reporting up to leadership on an annual basis, but these data points are being used for, I don't know, you know, um, more advanced modeling for something, and then it gets a little murky to me because okay, you get to experiment and do some modeling, but really, how are you using that? Are decisions going to be made, you know, for me or about me based on this information? And so again, it's giving that right. I think to an it's like an employee bill of rights this ability to have some agency over um, the use of my data right and so we see that reflected in regulatory um, you know s- regulatory uh, approaches such as GDPR and other other countries of course are are you know fast going down this route as well um, but ultimately it comes down to we have a lot of power within analytics functions and it's not can we do something we can do a ton of stuff right whether it's through our tools, tech, our measurement, you know, approaches or what have you, should we be doing it? And
1: Mm -hmm.
2: should we be doing it? Maybe there's a business justification, but have we appropriately made sure that we've, you know, brought all interested parties into that such that we're not making a godlike decision on something um, agnostic to, you know? (laughs)
0: Yeah. I I, I generally approach, I'm one of these guys, (laughs) I I model all day, et cetera. And I get Mm -hmm. called to like the principal's mm-hmm. office of privacy every so often. Mm-hmm. And I generally approach them like Michael Scott does Toby, just like, <laughs> like, Oh God, I got to deal with these guys again. Um, when, when can like GDPR go too far? Like on mm. one hand, it's, it's a seatbelt. It keeps you safe. Uh, it keeps you from getting in trouble, protects employees, et cetera. But a lot of times it seems like it's applied almost like a NASCAR seatbelt, mm-hmm. like a five point restraint that is just like kind of too much, too much.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: how do we reach this balance?
2: You know, I don't, this was a question I had recently in, a, in a, um, a, an event I attended because I was speaking on the subject and, you know, look, there's always going to be tension. Like, let's just be honest. And the question was actually more about like, how do you put something like this into practice if you're already kind of far down the path, Scott, to your point, right? Yeah. We're already kind of doing this stuff. Is there, is there a model where you pull things back to get things right? And what does right look like? You know, that's the question versus, um, you know, so it's this, what's, what is the chicken or the egg? Is it rigor or is it agility? Right. And to to your earlier point,
0: like we don't know what's coming next either.
2: Right. That's the other thing. So we don't have a crystal ball, right? All we know is that, I mean, look at the past 10 years of advancements, there's going to be stuff we can't, couldn't even like, you know, imagine right now. And so the best you can do is say, And I want to go to um, just something, you know, as I was working out, you know, joining HP and building out this team, it was around, like, what is our overarching charter and what are our guiding principles? And, you know, what I consciously did, and this is going to mean different things as time goes on, but I said, okay, our charter is to, you know, align efforts, right, certainly within HR, but also across the board with our partners and stakeholders to drive ethical, cross-functional and integrated solutions, right? And it was very conscious to put the word ethical in there um, in terms of our charter. But in our guiding principles, it's also very much about like, well, we have to be agile. So this gets back to the tension. How do you do this, right?
1: We do have to work
2: across boundaries and span those. We want to embody agility at scale. We want to create a single source of harmonized truth and all that good stuff that most analytics functions are working toward. Um, But we really do want to assume privacy by default. And what does that look like? That's different than privacy by design. So I think, Scott, that's one of the distinctions there is how much of it is around, oh, well, there's these set of parameters and protocols and procedures that you have to follow versus are we having these critical conversations about whether we should be doing something? Is it the right thing? Is it ethical? How, at the end of the day, does this help or hurt an employee in all the potential scenarios, how that might play out? Yeah, and I don't dude. think we do a good job of documenting that, just broadly speaking. Um, not us, just the you know. That's a challenge. The,
0: the the tenet of do no harm. Absolutely, yeah, exactly,
2: yeah. And and you know, I think too, to be fair, oftentimes groups don't start out. There's, I believe, people come to the table with good intentions. I I do think there's some bad players and bad actors out there. I don't think they're um. The norm, right? I don't think it's like we have this insidious like,
1: you know, right. issue
2: within analytics, but I do agree. I think it's like, we come with good intentions, but they go awry really quickly if you don't have some sort of uh, rigor, some I, sort of rigor around it.
0: And when we're seeing other trends like personalization come into people mm-hmm. analytics where I mean, that's kind of like the antithesis of uh, you know, privacy constraints. So yeah. like e- either you treat people as a whole or, you know, you, you get very granular the way, I don't know, Netflix mm-hmm. recommends uh, shows to you or there's some sort of like middle ground that we're going to reach eventually.
2: And it can feel creepy, right? Again, it goes back yeah. to how much is this is disclosure and transparency? Because, you know, I think, you know, think, think to sometime you got a weird feeling in your tummy when something happened and you start a question like, oh, this feels a little odd. We We shouldn't we should be figuring making sure that those those experiences don't happen right and and i don't know it's different for every organization depending on where you are in your journey and what you're sort of tackling but like at the end of the day we have common sense and we know as individuals how we experience this in our day-to-day life like put yourself in an employee's shoes and overlay that right and and think five steps forward as to how this might snowball right Um, and
0: there's some wild technology on the (laughs) on the horizon as well you know Mm -hmm. augmented reality and all Mm -hmm. sort of stuff Mm it's i mean it'll be here in 10 years
2: yeah exactly yeah and so you can't stop the tide yeah (laughs) you can't you can't stop the tide we cannot do that that's you know illogical to think that's the case but um you can't also bury your head in the sand i don't think and pay pay attention to this and i think um it would behoove a lot of analytics groups to be uh thinking critically about um how they wrap that into their day to day operations and, and strategy setting.
1: You know, um, I have a, a riff on this. Something I've been thinking about, like if if there was a an X axis is like what is privacy for empo- what pl- employees care about, and the Y axis is you know uh, what the organizations care about. What if there was a Z axis, right? And what what would that look like? Um, because You know, most of us have heard like the New York Times rule, which is like if you're doing something and it's borderline unethical, would you want Mm -hmm. it to show up on the front page of the New York Times? Mm -hmm. And would that reflect poorly on you and on your organization? But I've been kind of thinking about it from a different angle, right? And and again, kind of you even said this earlier, Amy, of like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Mm -hmm. And there's this notion and I, I was coming across this the other day. I can't remember exactly how, but it was like when the the founders of the United States came together, they, they said essentially something along the lines of, you know, this country won't will cease to be a democracy when people quit living up to their virtues. Basically, to have a sustained democracy, you have to have a virtuous society. And I kind of feel this way about people analytics itself. And it's sort of like, you know, people use the definition of character. Character is what you do when no one is looking. Like the Z axis to me is, and I'm actually thinking about writing an article about this in relation to privacy and governance in particular in people analytics is what, what if like, what if there, you know, GDPR is like, you know, an employee's bill of rights, but what if there was like a virtuous standard that people analytics professionals had to hold themselves to. And that's what kept the back bad actors out of the field Hmm. because One of the things that they talked about is you can't adjudicate or use laws to get yourself out of bad behavior because bad behavior happens even when laws exist. It requires a virtuous society to make sure that good behaviors and the baton gets passed from one generation to the next. I don't know. What do you think about this, Amy?
2: Right. I think it's an interesting notion. I would sort of um, kind of where my mind's going as you're talking about this is we think about training individuals to come. There's the one thing about people who are already in the field practicing, but as we think about that next generation of of folks coming up and coming into the field, like how do we how do we educate right like what what would, what does that look like in practice right? when when you think back to like your education, um if you did do graduate education in, in a space whether it be oB or i o or whatever, um are we are talking about these tough things right i mean we're talking we're we're training people and all the things we should be in terms of theory and and you know um that sort of thing but um it, it's almost like this this stuff is sticky and it's it's not stuff that's like popping in textbooks we're getting it through some of our other commentary and some of the newer like you know books coming out but it hasn't seemed to be to me much of a focus and i don't think it's something Especially if there are students coming up with a lot of, without a lot of practical experience, it it doesn't seem very tangible. You know what I mean? And so to me, it's an interesting notion. Um, How do we, how do we start to shift that way for, you know, our analytics organizations that are already like, you know, in in practice and, and what's our, what's our responsibility to do that for the next generation coming up into this field?
0: Right. it's so true uh like it, when you're going through a phd program or a master's program the ethics section seems to be like an afterthought you know you got all the main topics of io etc but i think what, what cole's really getting at is some sort of like social pressure to develop yeah. norms yeah. within the io or people analytics community mm-hmm. which then turns into a broader i don't know a, a culture Psychist. a culture of behaviors yeah there you go <laughs>
2: Uh, <laughs> I had to throw that word in there. I think that was one Cole used to try to wedge in a conversation quite a lot. In. Yeah, got to do it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's a really interesting um, interesting idea. I mean, I don't know. And it's one of these things that, like, we need to be attending to. But it also feels, like, so big, right? It feels important. It feels big. And, like, how do we, how do we start to tackle this? I mean, certainly modeling Um, whether it's through our behaviors as leaders or doing things like trying to, you know, put that into place, whether through, you know, operating models and resource models. I think that's the start. Um, I think we're doing it now,
1: honestly. Yeah. Things like this have a reach. And if we decide what the normative behavior is, that's acceptable Mm -hmm. and what's unacceptable. and We kind of culturally enforce that. I think this is, this is the, the spark that lights a fire.
0: So I, I recently conducted some research that uh, hopefully will be uh, published soon, where we can track uh, the diffusion of culture across the organization mm-hmm. uh, about three steps out. So your behaviors really impact in the data, we can see this, it impacts people three steps out. And it follows uh, the same methodology as uh, Christakis and Fowler, 2007, a really great study. But uh, to Cole's point, be the change you have greater yeah. reach than you really imagined so like we're, we're talking about this on this podcast now someone may tell their friend the same thing and you know it trickles down
1: mm-hmm. well and i think i mean scott knows this from his network research but when things expand through a network they expand non-linearly mm-hmm. right and so you can have disproportionate impacts by just infecting a few key nodes or just mm-hmm. you know a- extending to a much broader audience and I think this is a part of making it happen. Amy, do you want to talk at all about you know the work that you're doing with Tal Reyes in this regard, and and how that could be a potential spark that's lighting the fire?
2: Yeah. So, um, thanks for bringing that up. So, I, you know, recently this past year, sort of reconnected with um, this this group out of Northwestern. It's an amazing working group um, comprised of people analytics uh, leaders and professionals cross cutting industries and and you know. Um, what we're, this EQM effort is, um, it's called the Employment Quality Metrics Initiative. And probably no surprise to a lot of the listeners here, but, um, you know, there's been a push to uh, focus on um, SEC, um, you know, related human capital metrics related reporting, right? And there's some indications that both SEC and Congress may expand. These Secure, reporting security exchange? Yes, okay. sorry, Security Exchange Commission. So for publicly traded companies, of course, there's some mandates to disclose annually, right? Um, Right. Certain sets of data. And historically, here's the thing. There's been like, you know, snippets of HR or human capital data disclosed, but there's no standardization, right? So it really limits the ability to have, I think, fair and just inter-firm and intra-firm comparisons, right? So the idea behind this group is, um, can we pull together, you know, people analytics professionals that can develop a body of metrics, right, to uh, serve as sort of a framework for standardization in this space? Um, there's, there's indications that, you know, beyond the typical things like headcount and turnover, right, and top level diversity metrics that there's, in, you know, um, ultimately going to be uh, requests for things like employee well-being, or engagement metrics. Again, there's no standardization across organizations and how they report this stuff, right? So um, how much does it really move the needle? I think it's positive that there's a push to disclose more of that information so that you know stakeholders and, and investors can make more informed decisions about organizations. Um, but how much are we helping if we don't drive any sort of standardization in this space? Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of like at a 30,000-foot level The idea behind this initiative and it's it's an amazing amount of work i mean i can't even speak to how much work's gone into this and really the ask for the working um, groups that are involved in this is to take the framework as as it exists right now it's been under development for well at least two years probably more on and beta test it on our own data and then we don't share data but we come back and say look this is how it's feasible or not feasible. Here are recommendations for changing this framework, all with the intention of getting to a place at some point of essentially lobbying for this um, this move forward. So back to the question, how does this maybe factor in? Again, this is another example where you can participate and say, you know, this, you know, to us, this is like fair and just and equitable. This will allow us to, you know, ensure there's a level playing field in terms of what's getting reported across across um, organizations. And I'd probably be remiss in saying we all, a lot of us participate in providing information for annual reports. And, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, what did, you know, XYZ competitor do? Like how much are they just, dis- how much did they put in their report last year? Should we model it after theirs? And, you know, there's always a question of, Well, we don't exactly know how they calculated turnover or whatever, you know, the case may be. So it is another. My my
1: biggest concern is just making sure that by creating these standards that there's not second order and third order effects that actually end up hurting the employees in the, the companies that are being worked for. I mean, less than 10 years ago. All a company had to do was literally report the number of employees that worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the only required human capital statistic and mm-hmm. I think it was good that they've you know they've gone this direction of requiring more and more human capital reporting. Mm-hmm. but let's make sure that we keep the human capital in mind yeah. when we do this uh, this like time ty- type of work as well.
2: And it's it's not easy. I will tell you, there's spirited debate on these conversations about why something, you know, provisionally works in one organization, but wouldn't in another. So it's not easy. And it's not, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. But again, getting back to having these conversations, right? This is how things advance. This is how things change. So I don't know ultimately where it'll end up, but the fact that people analytics leaders are coming together and having these conversations kind of, it's a pro bono, right? This is on top of all the other work we're doing. We're doing this on our own time. You know, it's, it's because we believe there's some value in having this discourse innovate. Right. So I, I think that's, that's another example.
0: Um, Oh, I, I apologize, Cole. I didn't realize you were pointing at me. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll cut this out. So yeah.
2: what? What's fifty six uh, on the hour?
0: Fifty six on the hour. So, like, what what's coming up next, Amy? Like, what what do you have? Uh, what, what do you see coming down the pipe?
2: Uh, like for people analytics broadly speaking, or for us? <laughs> um, and maybe I can tie those two things together. I think you know um, we have. I think some challenges as we look at our technology landscape and that there's, there's Mm -hmm. a ton of stuff out there, right. Platform systems, all that sort of stuff. Um, whether procured homegrown, there's just a litany of things. Right. And we know that there's a real big push. I mean, with vendors having, um, kind of more data integration capabilities, um, as well as we're seeing a huge surge in, you know, um, I don't know if I want to say trying to force in, but whatever, like surveying capabilities also kind of popping in um, some of these, these technology um, spaces. And so I think taking a critical look and saying, okay, we can't just keep adding more things to the plate. We have to really get, I think, thoughtful and focused about how we're um, streamlining internally. And so I know this is one of the things that a lot of, you know, organizations, including us, you know, are, are facing right now. And figuring out, um, you know, how do we sort of cut some of the clutter, right? Because we have so much right now out there. There's so much rich data. We're not using all of it. Um, again, it's a question about what what should we be using and how should we be using it, but also how should we be pulling it together and surfacing it through a more um, integrated and streamlined, certainly from a user experience standpoint, but also for me from a management standpoint. like. It's just too much out there, right?
0: Yeah, I I wish we had more time to get into this. I'm on a -hmm. a personal mission to get rid of all of our dashboards or, you know, (laughs) a a good chunk of them that, you know, it's another link that managers have to follow. And you have all these sort of like privacy concerns with data all over the place. And Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that they actually use them anyway. So.
2: Yeah. yeah, well, that's another thing is like also just focusing on audiences. I think sometimes there's a little bit of a tendency to kind of figure out, okay, here are the two big audiences, and then you just sort of stall out. Yeah. It's like, ultimately, what's that reach and applicability of scaled solutions. And so for us, that's very much a primary focus is continuing to move along that path so that we really get to that, like, maybe lofty goal, but the 80% scale. Um, and then you're never going to get away from the 20% that you have to sort of, you know, solution through, through other mechanisms. But, you know, for us, it's very much the vision to get to, um, you know, kind of, kind of carve that down. Right.
1: Yeah. My, my riff on it is the last 10 years of people analytics was focused on resource gathering, whether it be mm-hmm. gathering data, gathering you know, headcount and teams and budget and technology. Mm-hmm. The next 10 years is focused on scale. Yeah. Right. And yep. that's going to, you know, it's going to level out the resourcing out, but we can dig into this in a, in a future episode because I think there, there's some nuggets there to be taken out of it. But mm-hmm. if, you, if you've made it this far in the podcast, I appreciate you <laughs> dealing with my <laughs> voice sounding horrible uh, so far. But um, Amy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, any, any closing words from you, Scott, and then we'll turn it over to Amy.
0: No, a- Amy, it's been a pleasure seeing you again and uh, chatting with you. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah. No, thank you. Thanks to both of you. I really enjoy being here today. And uh, you know, it's nice that we had a very organic conversation. Um, Hopefully there's, there's some nuggets of interest here for the listeners, but you know, at the end of the day, closing more marks, I mean, we're all in this together. I think we're all dealing with similar challenges. They may look a little different from organization to organization, but um, I'd say, you know, uh, please reach out. I mean, you know, Cole and I, we, we connect all the times and bat ideas around where I ask how he's handled something, you know, Scott, I'm sure you and he do the same. And, you know, honestly, you have this wonderful resource of professionals and, and colleagues available to you. So, you know, let's use it so that we can continue advancing the knowledge and, and, and having these these tough conversations and, um, you know, fostering, fostering debate. Cause I think that's what, what pushes us forward here.
1: Absolutely. Well, you've, you've listened to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with uh, Cole Knapper and Scott Hines. Amy Stevenson from Hewlett-Packard, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day, guys. You too. Great.